Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Over the weekend, we learned in Ontario first and then in British Columbia that we have first cases of the new strain of the coronavirus now in Canada. Here to talk about it this morning is Dr. Brian Conway, the medical director and infectious disease specialist with Vancouver's Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, good morning. Welcome, sir. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us, Doc, because, of course, a lot of people are really anxious about this. We had that case reported in suburban Toronto on Saturday, and then yesterday we learned about something on Vancouver Island here much closer to home. What do you know about the BC case, Dr. Conway? Well, this is an individual who returned from the United Kingdom, flew direct to Vancouver on or about December 15th, and then got to the island, quarantined appropriately, and then became symptomatic three or four days later, and was diagnosed with COVID and then isolated. And in analyzing this strain, it was exactly the strain, the new UK strain in this individual. So they obviously were infected before they left the United Kingdom or incubating the disease as they returned and became ill after they got back to Vancouver Island. Interesting. So they did go through the uh, the protocol, the required 14-day quarantine, but that wasn't a long enough period for the virus to just... I hesitate to use the word disappear, doctor, because that's not appropriate, but for it to go away, some is, is that not typically what a quarantine period allows an individual to do to, to wait out the virus? Well, they were diagnosed during the quarantine. So as we know, a number of individuals are asymptomatic and are already infected. So as they left the United Kingdom, they were already infected. When mm. they landed in Vancouver, they were already infected but had no symptoms. And as they traveled to Vancouver Island, they were already infected. It is during the first few days of their quarantine that they developed symptoms. That prompted us to do a test. Up until then, a test had not been done in the absence of symptoms. And that's when the infection was detected. So it's possible that during the trip home, including the time that they spent traveling back from Vancouver to Vancouver Island, that they may have infected other people. That's something that really needs closer scrutiny in uh, in the couple of days to come. And, of course, we know that we've hired another uh, 1,200 contact tracers over the last few months here in British Columbia. And I would imagine that there'll be a small squadron of those put on this particular case because uh, it, it goes back to the flight. And as you mentioned, uh, there would be a ferry ride, presumably, to Vancouver Island and, and multiple potential for exposure. Will we be able to successfully trace all of that, do you think? Well, one of my major concerns is way back in November, Health Minister Dix promised that we should be doing 20,000 tests a day. We are averaging just under 7,000 at this point. Mm -hmm. To be able to control the pandemic more effectively, we need to test much more broadly, identify the transmission networks and interrupt them. And I think this is a good example of where we need 
much more testing and it has to be done now. Well, there is an experiment underway with the government of Canada at uh, the Calgary airport where all uh, passengers, inbound passengers, it's one of the four Canadian airports still accepting international arrivals. And in Calgary, as I understand it, Dr. Conway, virtually every passenger from every international flight is tested. And uh, that is the that's the protocol that many in the medical community would have liked to have seen established months ago at all four of those Canadian airports. Is that what you're talking about this morning? Well, we have a UK strain. We have a Nigerian strain. We may have other strains that are being identified that may be more infectious. And one of these days, a strain will be identified that increases severity of disease and mortality. So in that context, I think it is imperative at the current stage of the pandemic that we test, at least in a pilot level, everyone who's coming into the country. Agreed. Because, yeah. So, uh, and what... Uh, where are we in terms of the government of Canada being on side with this idea as we are learning uh, through various uh, sources over the last couple of weeks? Our borders have actually never been closed and many thousands of people have arrived in Canada during this entire process. Well, this does not seem to be the highest priority. Obviously, the work of dealing with the pandemic is consuming a lot of resources. Of right now, we're focusing on getting the vaccine out we're focusing on making sure that, uh, that all of the public health measures across the country are reasonably well aligned so that we can uh, deal with the pandemic in a uniform manner. I think this week and next week, especially with the holiday season, we need to get more testing out there. So uh, now, how concerned should, say, the people of Vancouver Island be this morning, Dr. Conway, knowing that there's this new European strain uh, active uh, in uh, their particular corner of the province? How how infectious is this? Because apparently the, uh, the uh, material that I've read de- describing this new uh, UK strain indicates it can be up to 70% more infectious than the current one that we've come to know here as COVID-19. Yes, what that means is that if you happen to encounter someone who is carrying it and engage in a behavior that promotes viral transmission, it's 70% more likely that that encounter will lead to an infection Mm -hmm. compared to the older strain. So this reinforces the need to really adhere to all of the public health guidelines that we know prevent viral transmission. And finally, Dr. Conway, and we're grateful for your time on a busy Monday morning, sir. What is the status of these individuals currently on Vancouver Island? This new strain has been identified. Clearly, they will be in some form of isolation. And and what's the prognosis? Well, my understanding is that hospitalization is not required. The individual who is infected with this strain, as with any other strain, is being monitored very closely for a minimum of 10 days in strict isolation and would be able to resume their normal activities if they continue to improve and the last three or four days of that 10 days they are completely asymptomatic so we wish them well and uh, i'm going to add one piling on here flag on the play doc but i'm going to add one more the the moderna and pfizer vaccines that are now available to canadians and becoming more so as time goes by are said to be a equally effective and b as effective against this new strain as they are for the strain for which they were developed do you concur This is an excellent piling on question, an important issue, and yes, I concur. There's no evidence to show that this strain is any less susceptible to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines than the garden variety strain we've been used to seeing in Canada.
Well, that's an important thing to know. That, that'll take the anxiety factor down a couple of notches, don't you think? Absolutely. Dr. Conway, thanks so much for being with us this morning, sir. We appreciate your time. At the 11th hour at his club in Florida, Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump signed the $900 billion pandemic relief bill after early, earlier rather refusing to do so. So what prompted the 11th hour change of heart? We go to Reggie Cicchini at Global News Bureau in Washington for the details. Reggie, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. So we had a change of heart. Uh, the president said he wanted, did not want Americans to receive $600. He wanted them to receive $2,000. Uh, this was a, a real change of strategy because his team had been working for that six, on that $600 number since day one, and it actually hammered out a deal. It did hammer out a deal, and it had full bipartisan support, which is important here for context. It's also important to remember that, yes, while the president's people were involved in the negotiations of this massive bill, this COVID relief bill that was tied to government spending, uh, the president sat on the sidelines and really didn't get involved at all until the very end when it was really too late to go back and try to draft a new bill. So what we have now is the president essentially going back on his word, saying, well, fine, we'll give them $600. We'll also trying to say, well, I also want $2,000, something that his own party is simply not going to go along with. Well, that's it. The Republicans in the Senate, particularly, but even in the House, have been against the notion of anything more than $600 because, as Rand Paul said, Reggie, just the other day, this is socialism and it's wrong. So uh, now Chuck Schumer, with the president's, almost the president's blessing, <laughs> says, look, I'm going to pitch uh, a bill to the Senate now asking for that 2000 per person the president himself was asked uh, was after that's a, and and really putting senate republicans on the spot how do you think they're going to respond yeah, look, this is going to be huge. I mean, first of all, we have to look at it from the House perspective as well. That's where the Democrats have the majority and Republicans may fall in line with them, save for people maybe from the Freedom Caucus and and and, repres- uh, and leader, rather, Kevin McCarthy, minority leader Kevin McCarthy. The Senate side really is going to be interesting here. Last night, Mitch McConnell put out a statement thanking the president, giving him some praise for passing this uh, or for signing this bill that he held off on uh, for a week, which has complications of its own. Nonetheless, he didn't make any kind of comment about the so-called suggestions and promises that the president said that he received from uh, from Senate Republicans. Mm-hmm. So we have to see how this is actually going to play out. It is not likely going to survive or have any legs to stand on with Senate Republicans, uh, meaning that $600 is probably going to stay $600. Yeah, and the other thing about this bill, and, and there's a, just a massive sigh of relief at the uh, finally uh, relenting and signing it, uh, there was also a little matter of the the government potentially being shut down had it not been signed. Yeah, look, and this was Democrats kind of move uh, by saying if we're going to get this COVID relief bill passed, we should tie it to something that the president really can't ignore, even though the president uh, did ignore it. And that is because government funding was about to run out uh, uh, within the last uh, 24 hours, or rather tonight. At midnight, uh, the government would have shut down if they weren't able to pass that stimulus bill. So uh, Democrats and Republicans worked together to get this as one massive spending bill. It led to confusion 
confusion, though. The president, when he came out with that that pre-Christmas message uh, where he was talking about the things he didn't like, what the president was talking about were things that were inside the government spending bill, but he was making it seem like they were part of the relief bill, right. and therefore it was veto-worthy. So this also caused a big uh, kind of round of confusion because not only would the president have been you know, cutting off $600 in benefits for Americans that need it, he would have been shutting down the federal government, effectively costing the government billions of dollars. Well, and also, of course, uh, as I understand it, Reggie, at midnight last night, the unemployment benefits of millions of Americans also expired, would have also expired, but for the signing of this bill. Yes, they, that would have happened as well. But there were also two key programs that had already expired uh, right after Christmas. Uh, and that uh, had to do with the previous act that had been uh, in place that was providing additional stimulus checks to these Americans. Now that the bill has signed, they will restart. Governments are going to have to go and reprogram their computers. Mm-hmm. So what it'll do is lead to retroactive payments. But because the president held off for nearly a week on signing that bill, it will be one full week lost of benefits that will not come back to the Americans that need it most. Yeah, interesting stuff. Now, Reggie, before we let you go, there's another bill that remains quite controversial and incomplete, and that's the defense spending bill that Mr. Trump so far has threatened to veto. And the House, uh, both houses on uh, Christmas break are also saying, if you do, we will come back and we will override you for the first time. Think about your legacy. Is that the way you want to go out? And that's what Republicans are saying to the president. Look, he's holding, he stalled on relief for COVID-19. He stalled on keeping the government funded. Now he is stalling and keeping America's uh, kind of security at the safest level that he can by holding back on these billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, for U.S. national defense. The president himself holding back on signing this because he doesn't like that they're going to include name changes for bases that are named after Confederate soldiers. The president has really made this a kind of uh, a part of his presidency. Uh, but nonetheless, if he does veto this, Republicans and Democrats will have the majority to be able to override that veto, essentially kind of, uh, you know, providing a swift backhand to President Trump, but also yet another stain or tarnish uh, on his administration at the expense right now of it not being signed of every service member in this country who is actively working to ensure the security of this country. Yeah, right. And some of whom are looking for a well-deserved raise, and that's part of the language of the bill, too. What do you sense, Reggie, by the way, uh, uh, in terms of how is this going to end? Do you think the president will relent, as he did finally, for the uh, pandemic relief uh, authorization? Will he do the same with the defense bill? I mean, look, the president may just pocket veto this and allow it to kind of be shelved. And and, and if he doesn't veto it, uh, eventually things would have to move forward anyways, because a new administration would come in. It would likely create some kind of uh, of, of kind of kerfuffle in the payments and, and processing of monies back and forth. At the end of the day, Congress, a new Congress is going to come in. Uh, a new administration is going to come in. It may cause a couple of weeks of crisis here. Uh, but the president has so many things that he is actively trying to work against right now, whether it's election integrity, whether it's COVID relief, whether it's national defense, uh, that he really is kind of taking it from all sides right now to say, look, you have a couple of weeks left. Do something to go out on a high. Don't do something that's going to be all people talk about. And that would be those final 28 days that he really has been holding America hostage. Indeed. Uh, A cast of characters question for you, Reggie. We know that Dr. Fauci has been persuaded by the Biden administration to remain on in his capacity. He's 80 plus years old and apparently quite tickled to be asked and delighted to stay around. On the other side, his former colleague under the Trump regime, Dr. Deborah Burks, is said to have retired. What's the story? 
Uh, we just know that Dr. Burke says that she, uh, you know, ha- had, you know, had a long career and did what she could to try and, uh, you know, serve a- as a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, is willing to kind of stay on and give any kind of help that she needs. But look, Dr. Burks has come under intense scrutiny, not only uh, in the last several weeks after it was discovered that she hung out with family members on U.S. Thanksgiving, uh, but also just the fact that she really has kind of towed the president's line sometimes by not pushing back on false information, by pushing the administration's kind of uh, dancing around the severity of the numbers surrounding COVID-19 for the last several months. She really has kind of put her her decades-long reputation in this country, especially when it comes to work with HIV-AIDS, on the line solely to remain in the good books uh, of President Trump, or at Mm -hmm. least that's how it came across on the surface. So potentially going out to avoid any kind of, you know, further criticism or or scathing review from the press. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, this is a doctor who is well-revered around this country and did do good for the betterment of this country during COVID-19. Indeed, that lot is very popular still, and no question about it. Reggie, thanks very much. Appreciate your time and the update. Nicole McKnight is back with us today. Nicole is the PR manager with Finder.com. Joined us on the weekend to talk very briefly about porch pirates and theft statistics. Back with us today because Finder.com has been tracking Canadians' holiday spending activities. And we have an update this morning. Nicole, welcome back. Good to talk to you again. Yes, thanks, Sterling. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great. great. And I, I want to—I want you to keep those porch pirate numbers close by because yeah. uh, you absolutely blew us away over the weekend with just the sheer volume of it all. But let's talk about Christmas spending habits. We know, uh, we mm-hmm. have known for quite some time leading up to the holiday season, Nicole, that by mm-hmm. and large, Canadians were planning to spend something less than last year. What did that turn out to be? Not that we're done spending yet, but the yeah. big <laughs> the big stuff, the presents, for example, are behind us now for the most part. Right. And so we basically we had asked Canadians um, pre-pandemic in February of this year what they were planning to spend uh, on the holiday season and then asked them again just a month ago or so. Okay. And we found that people were about planning to spend about 30% less. So that works out to $2.4 billion less. Uh, approximately spent this holiday compared to last year. So that's, is that now, is that Nicole, uh, all two, two plus billion dollars less that we had mm-hmm. planned to spend in February when we were asked? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, I expect to spend this. And then uh, many months later, uh, when pandemic reality is a part of everyone's decision making, that decision yes. was quite different. Exactly that. Yeah. So basically the spend, the average spend was down about $183 per person from pre-pandemic times to, you know, a month before the holidays when people reassessed in the new COVID reality. That's that's pretty significant stuff. Um, uh, Did did people tell you where they thought that we'd be be spending less uh, specifically, Nicole, or was it that just my budget is just that much lower? Yeah, I think it was a bit of the budget just being lower and just kind of looking at the holidays as a whole. And um, we also did a survey about how people were planning to spend their holidays. So in terms of time, like, Mm -hmm. you know, in British Columbians, for example, you know, only 4% were planning to venture out to visit family and friends and this holiday season. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're doing less of that, less of the visits, less of the big festive gatherings, dinners, even gift exchange, only 25% of Canadians on, on average were planning to do gift exchange. So I think naturally um, how we were planning to spend the holiday in this new reality 
you know, had some implications to us spending less as a result because yeah. there's just fewer things to do. Yeah, let me offer just a, a one tiny little bit of anecdotal evidence for you, mm-hmm. Nicole. We, our radio station is at Pacific Center in downtown Vancouver. We're on top of the Pacific Center Mall, the Cadillac Fairview, big, big mall in downtown yeah. Vancouver. So on mm-hmm. Boxing Day, Saturday morning, I did my radio show, finished about nine mm-hmm. o'clock. And of course, the stores in the mall don't open until 10. So I get off right. the elevator in the parkade and I noticed for the first time in many, many weeks, it wasn't full by any means, but there were a heck of a lot of cars in the parkade on Boxing Day, an hour before the stores opened. And I thought to myself, well, this is good. <laughs> so the next day, Sunday, when you and I talked, I get off, yeah. at, I get off at 10. The stores are mm-hmm. open now. So I go downstairs to my car. There's yeah. nobody in the parkade. Right. So, so uh, from Boxing Day, a moderate crowd to the day after yeah. Boxing Day, nobody. What does that tell you? I, I think it tells you that the people that were coming out on Boxing Day are really conscious of looking for those discounts. We found that at Finder, we, we had a lot of traffic to our shopping sites around those holiday sales periods, especially Black Friday in mm-hmm. November, and again again now for Boxing Day. So I think even though Canadians are looking to spend less overall, they are looking for deeper discounts. We, we, we found that, I know I'm talking about Black Friday, but when we had asked them about that, um, you know, Canadians were by and large saying they, they weren't going to buy unless they were going to get a deeper discount this year. So so I think that's where that Boxing Day traffic came in. Sure. Um, but yeah, to your point, it kind of dissipates fairly quickly, much more than in typical years. Um, then again, people are also moving online for shopping quite a bit this year. So we've seen much increases in our in our traffic onto our shopping site yeah, and on I th- Finder. I think Boxing Day has also lost a little of its sizzle, don't you think, over mm-hmm. the years? Nicole, Boxing Day used to be a yeah. day. It used to be the day after right. Christmas when people would line up for hours and go for those big bargains on electronics and so on. And that morphed yeah. from Boxing Day to Boxing Week, and now it's Boxing exactly. Month. <laughs> the, Im- the impact capability of that one-day event has been been quite diminished, hasn't it? I think so. And I mean, even anecdotally from my own life, I had to buy a new television around the Black Friday timeframe and I was all slated to, you know, stay up very late or wake up early to get the deals. But one of the stores, you know, a few days before Black Friday said, oh, here's the deals early. And so it kind of takes away that cachet of having to wake up really early or get, you know, get there right on time because sales are kind of happening just more often throughout the entire season. Yeah, question for you, just a habit question for you. Back in Mm -hmm. February, when you surveyed Canadians and what we were anticipating spending and how we were going Mm -hmm. to spend our money on Christmas this year, this is in February before we knew about anything, and so we said, we're going to do this. And and Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, in February, how many Canadians said they were most likely to do their shopping online, Nicole, versus the number of Canadians that actually did do their shopping online in November, December? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we have that exact stat, but we did do another survey around that time around online shopping. And I think it was around half of Canadians said that they were planning to incorporate online shopping. And then again, we've seen increases across the board. So like I know with our online traffic, we have shopping sites on finder.com and we saw a 90% increase in traffic to the shopping deal sites in November and December over last year. So that's a massive increase (laughs) alone just just to kind of measure that traffic. (laughs) So yeah, definitely the biggest online shopping season that we've seen yet in Canada, really. And I think that trend will continue 
well into the new year and it kind of speaks to the whole porch pirates things as well, well you know more and more people receiving their products on their doorstep as and, opposed to physically at the store and we're almost out of time and thank you for opening that door mm-hmm. for me because here's yeah. some here's some eye-watering numbers for you friends that nicole and her f- f- uh, colleagues at finder.com have been gathering about uh, online shopping more and more of us you just heard billions of dollars uh, in online purchases all of which end up being delivered by someone to your place and may or may not actually make it into your hands nicole what have you found in terms of porch pirates and the sheer numbers involved yeah so uh, basically one in four canadians say that they've been a victim of a porch pirate in their lifetime so that's an estimated you know almost seven million canadians who've who've been victimized for, by package theft and that equals around 784 million worth of product based on, you know, when we asked them what the product was worth, some people had items stolen that were worth upwards of $250, some, some less, but when we averaged it out, it it really worked out to about 784 million um, that's been taken from Canadians front doorsteps. So clearly surveillance uh, toys uh, are going to be very popular going forward. I know they were popular this year. I would suspect even more so going forward. Uh, Thanks very much for this, Nicole. It's great to have you back on. And it's good to know where we are uh, as uh, we wrap things up and get get all the accounting ready for the end of 2020. Can't come fast enough for most of us. Exactly. Fully agree. Thank you so much for having me on, Sterling. It's great to have you back. Nicole McKnight is the PR manager for Canada at Finder.com. Over the weekend, former B.C. politician Rich Coleman came under fire after a Twitter joke about the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccine fell flat. In a since-deleted Twitter post, uh, initially posted on Saturday, Coleman's asked, and here's the quote, how will we know if the vaccines are working? Will the survival rate go from 99.5% up to 99.7%? Close quote. That was the tweet. So then, that was taken down shortly after, but it was, uh, of course, out there. Lots of people saw it and did screen grabs, that sort of thing. So Coleman followed it up with, quote, So I tweeted something earlier and on reflection thought it wasn't that funny. My bad. Sorry, folks. Close quote. And that's uh, the status of that one. Now, we've uh, had a lot of commentators and a lot of people go after him on social media and all the rest of it. And our own Jody Vance has uh, taken Rich uh, to task on social media as well. And here to talk about it again this morning is uh, Mo Amir from Van Color Moments. Mo, good morning. Good morning, Sterling, and I hope you enjoyed a very Merry Christmas. Uh, We did indeed. A little quieter than usual, a little uh, much. uh, We didn't even have a turkey, Mo. That's (laughs) going to happen in April or whenever we can actually get the turkey-eating clan all around the same table again. So we did. We had an alternative meal, uh, turkey on hold until an appropriate time. How about you? Uh, about the same. I had a mix of turkey and chicken, actually. So ah, it was okay. pretty good. So yeah. then you got your, your dander up because you saw this stuff on the weekend. What did you mm-hmm. make of it? So so Rich Coleman posts this variant of a meme that's been going around the Internet, and you already quoted it. You know, this anti-vaccine skepticism is so dumb, and that's the word that Mr. Coleman used in his apology afterwards because it's conflating a vaccine's effectiveness in preventing infection from a virus 
with the survival rate of being infected by the virus without vaccination. So, as you said, you know, 30 minutes later, Mr. Coleman apologizes, invoking what's become the BC Liberal mantra of 2020. It was a joke. Sorry, it wasn't funny. Mm-hmm. But frankly, there's no joke here. When 15,000 Canadians have died from this virus, which includes 800 British Columbians and 25 people in the Langley, Lo- Langley Lodge outbreak, which should have hit close to home for Mr. Coleman. So context is important here. You know, the reason this caused such an uproar is that Rich Coleman sat in elected office in B.C. for a quarter century. Mm -hmm. He's a former deputy premier, and I would say that he has a responsibility to support the public health office during a pandemic, not undermine it with conspiracy theory, anti-vax nonsense. And I, 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 I think this is important as well. You know, there is a segment of British Columbians, rightly or wrongly, that blame Rich Coleman personally for systemic money laundering in BC casinos, the housing crisis, everything associated with the Vancouver model. And I mean, Mr. Coleman is a guy that told people on social assistance, including people with disabilities, that they should remember how good we have it in this country because they're not poor people in the developing world. So outside of some interests that supported Mr. Coleman throughout his political career, interests like the Independent Contractors and Business Association, I would say that a lot of British Columbians, myself included, don't want to hear from Rich Coleman unless he's testified under oath in the Cullen Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the Vancouver province this morning, uh, quote, Coleman also noted he has stood up to anti-vaccine groups for years, having supported the polio vaccine for decades. He said the COVID-19 vaccine, quote, can't come quick enough. So, uh, and, and that, of course, is all in hindsight. Uh, did you uh, see the tweet as being somehow some kind of dog whistle to anti-vaxxers, Mo? I suppose so, yeah. I mean, that meme, it, 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 there is a meme, and it, it's come in different variants, uh, uh, joking about the survival rate, uh, has been going around those circles. So I don't know if that was a you know, hint, hint, uh, nudge, wink, or whatever, but, it, or it could have just been Mr. Coleman had a few drinks, uh, misunderstood the tweet, and, and, and put it up online for himself. I don't know, but I think at the end of the day, it's, it's irresponsible. It sends the wrong message. And again, his own words, it's dumb. It, it, it is completely anti-scientific, and it's unfortunate that he had to do that. Well, you know, and it's also, I think, symptomatic of something we've seen all this year from the Liberal Party of British Columbia, an absolutely tone-deaf sense of humor that now, in retrospect, and we can do the metrics, cost them seats in the legislature. Oh, absolutely. There's been a disconnect from reality this whole year with this party. It's unfortunate to say because there are a lot of BC liberals who really have good intentions, who really work hard in their communities and really want to do what's best for the province. What's unfortunate is they're they're being brought down by really ill-advised, ill-timed comments uh, by people who simply don't get it. And the rest of the province does, and they see it, and, you know, it's costing the party, it's affected their brand, and it's going to be really difficult for them to rebuild if this continues, especially as we know Rich Coleman's name is going to keep coming up during the Cullen Commission in the new year. Well, and have we heard anything now from the interim liberal leader, uh, even by, and of course, Coleman is no longer in the House, but it's, it's still, as you say, 25 years with the party. You're, you're definitely, you've left an impression on the current product, even if you're not sitting anymore. Uh, have we heard from the official uh, liberal party about this at all? 
nothing that I've seen. I haven't seen anything from Shirley Bond. Again, you know, there is an argument that Rich Coleman isn't in the party anymore, but given his history, uh, given his prominence within the party, I think it would be appropriate for the Liberal Party to come out and say, you know what, that didn't reflect us. Hey, Rich made a mistake. Uh, you know, don't judge his career based on one tweet, but that was wrong. You know, I think that was important. And I will say that Rich did do the right thing in apologizing immediately, taking it down. Uh, he had a little kerfuffle with MLA Nathan Cullen, which I thought was very strange. Because mm-hmm. Nathan Cullen just said, you know, you have to be a little more responsible and, and compassionate. And I think Rich said, uh, uh, a little rich coming from you, even though there's no evidence that Nathan Cullen has ever said anything to fuel conspiracy theories, whether that's anti-mask or anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. Well, I think that's probably also just a little politics going on there. You know, you've got a a veteran NDP, former MP, now MLA, uh, still chipping away at uh, the veteran provincial politician. uh, And, you know, uh, many decades of animosity, shall we say, between the two. So that that sort of uh, back and forth would be nothing but expected. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. But at the same time, we are talking about a uh, a pandemic, a public health crisis. We are talking about people who have died, including British Columbians, including people in Mr. Coleman's former riding. Um, it's not really a laughing matter. And, and throwing politics or political jabs at it, you know, I don't think it's a great look for, um, for Mr. Coleman in particular. I think Mr. Cullen just commented on it being irresponsible. I don't think he took any personal jabs at him. Well, the whole thing, of course, turns out to have been absolutely unnecessary from the get-go. So another unnecessary, a complete, complete gaffe uncalled for. Mo, thanks for this. Thank you. And it's time, of course, we're going to do a lot of closing out stuff over the next several days as we wrap up 2020. And for millions of Canadians, that can't happen fast enough. And one of the things that we're going to take a look at, in fact, right now, is some of the top entertainment uh, quotient uh, stuff that offered up, the movies that we saw in 2020. Although, frankly, not very many of us went to the theater, mostly because, well, we couldn't go. So we've had an odd year. We had a great year for network streaming services, but an odd year, certainly for Hollywood movie producers. Here to take a look at 2020 on the big screen is Steve Stebbing. Steve's a movie connoisseur and a critic. You can find him on Twitter at the Steevil Dead. Steve's in Penticton. Good morning. Good morning, Serling. How are you? I am fine, thanks. Love the Twitter handle. It just cracks me right up. (laughs) So, uh, just a totally weird movie year, though, Steve. How many movies did you actually see so far this year in a cinema? Oh, boy, in a cinema. The last thing I saw was in March. Would have been, uh, unfortunately, would have been Vin Diesel's Bloodshot. Uh, So, at that point, maybe 10, 15 movies at that point in theaters. So, yeah, very low compared to other years, which, which, you know, would probably crest on 80 or 90. Sure, of course, yeah. But you didn't even yeah. find your way to get to, to, to a big screen for Tenet then? No, no. I was, I was still a little wary about being, being in a theater at sure. that point. Yep. I, I think it was ill-advised for Warner Brothers to try to reboot people into theaters uh, and it didn't work out for them. I mean, they only made 10 million in the first weekend, which for a film of that size and stature is, 
uh, not good. Yeah, and and all I've heard, and I know it's, it's not on your list, but all I've heard about Tenet is that it's really interesting, and you really and, and you really need to see it on the big screen. And Steve, you really need to see it twice. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's what I'm, I've been told. Yeah, I'm very happy that Warner Brothers sent me the Blu-ray so I could unpack it a bit more because yeah, my first viewing of it was a lot of huh. Oh, okay, so what? What's happening here? Are they forward in time? Are they backwards in time? What's going on here? Exactly, yeah. So let's take a look at the movies you did see, and then we'll talk about streaming services a little later on. But we've got, we've got 10 films to go through. Mike has a few clips in the control room. So let's, uh, let's go through the list, starting from number 10 all the way up to 1. And you have a movie called Possessor at number 10. Tell us about it. I don't know it. Yeah, this is uh, this comes from uh, Brandon Cronenberg, who is the son of David Cronenberg, one of uh, uh, Canada's greatest directorial exports. Uh, and basically, this is uh, set in the future, and it follows an assassin who plugs herself into the brains of uh, willing participants who kind of act like drones for her as they carry out the, the mission. But she's been slowly splintering in her in her mind as uh, as uh, more kills crop up in her brain until she comes across a subject that isn't really willing to go into drone mode for her changing everything and this movie is totally messed up it's beautiful to look at it is incredibly gory going into that body horror type of stuff but it's just absolutely mesmerizing so the cronenberg family has this gene for strange but compelling movies it seems Yes, uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree at all, uh, but it's uh, he does kind of carve out his own side within the Cronenberg name, and this is only his second film, so I'm excited to see what he does next. Wow, that's uh, if it's that uh, that strong a, a second outing, that that bodes well. How old is uh, is young Mister Cronenberg? Do you know, Steve? I, I think he's in his thirties. Okay, like he's still he's still pretty young. Uh, so, I mean, he does have a, a wide-out future in front of him, and uh, he's an exciting new voice for sure. Indeed. Number nine on the Steve Stebbings top t- um, films of 2020 is a movie called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, take us through that one, Steve. Yeah, uh, and this is, uh, I mean, this one's a one that's going to play uh, a lot of an emotional drama and the very human grounded drama because it follows uh, two teen girls from uh, Pennsylvania that make uh, kind of a, a trip to uh, New York to, uh, to get rid of uh, an unwanted pregnancy. Uh, and it is a very somber trip, uh, very character-driven, and kind of uh, gets into the psyche of, of this main character. And, I mean, this is a, a film that's not going to have any kind of broad appeal to it. It is uh, one that you have to dig around for, but it's, uh, I, I mean, it, it really rocked a lot of film festivals. Remember those when we had those? Oh, film festivals, uh, yes. Right? A distant, uh, fond memory. Exactly. One that I, I, I just look back with so much love. But uh, I mean, this is one of those festival favorites uh, that should be on more top 10 lists, honestly, because it is just such a compelling drama. 
Is it uh, likely? Because some of those, uh, and we remember the festival circuit, in fact, that's how a lot of uh, young Mm. filmmakers uh, initially launched their material and got noticed. They won award after award uh, in the same year, and all of a sudden, have you heard about this? Well, look at this. And and that that, that vehicle is temporarily parked. Um, But is is this festival-type material also translatable as Oscar material? I think so. I, I really think that the pandemic kind of crushed um, it, it, its hopes because uh, it did have to kind of uh, recalibrate to a VOD rather than getting any sort of limited theater run, at least here in Canada. Uh, so that definitely squashes it in the minds of the, the regular audience, the mainstream audience. Mm-hmm. But uh, the great thing is if you are in like kind of the broadcast film uh, critics association, everything, uh, I mean, we get screeners all the time. So our opinions do kind of matter towards, you know, Golden Globes, uh, Oscar hopefuls, all that kind of stuff. So there is still that light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, interesting stuff. Uh, let's move on. Uh, movie number eight on Steve's top ten is She Dies Tomorrow. And Mike, if you got a clip, let's play that. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday I just thought for a second when the lights went out that that was it. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, Steve. Uh, yeah. Some birthday party. Absolutely. And uh, this plays into a, a, a subgenre in horror that I call anxiety horror that kind of plays on that foreboding unknown uh, that that uh, is cropped up in films like uh, Hereditary or Midsommar, where uh, it's just it gives the audience like this infused feeling of, of uneasiness. And that's really what is the heart of this one, because it follows uh, the main character who believes that uh, she's going to die the next day. And it is an, uh, uh, just an unfamiliar feeling, the one that she can't shake, and one that's actually contagious because a friend comes over to visit her and leaves with that same foreboding family, uh, feeling, goes to a birthday party, uh, and ends up imparting that same feeling on everybody. So it's kind of like a contagion movie at the same time. But uh, be forewarned, this movie is very much uh, an art house piece, uh, and I think that's where it landed with me so well. And it's not straightforward horror. So if you're like, I don't like horror movies, I don't like gory movies, yeah. you can still watch She Dies Tomorrow and still come out unscathed. Okay. So the big question is, does it become a self-fulfilling prophecy? No spoiling here now. Uh, uh, yeah, mo- that, Sterling, I, I, I try to avoid that one. Uh, I know. Uh, number, <laughs> number seven, Steve, on your list is a remake of a movie that, as I recall, was done originally in the 1950s. It's The Invisible Man. Yeah. Oh, boy. This movie. Uh, this is one of those, because this is what was an early uh, uh, theater experience because it did, did come out before the pandemic. Right, hit. yeah. And this was a really great movie to see with an audience because there are some points in this movie that has reveals where I audibly heard, heard people go, oh my God. And, and that's kind of stuff like that that makes you miss the theaters. But uh, writer and director Lee Winnell has reinvented this Invisible Man story uh, to be a story of an abusive relationship, of gaslighting, of uh, making somebody sound insane when they're really telling the truth. And Elizabeth Moss, 
who is astounded us all in Mad Men and The Handmaid's Tale, does it again in this movie. Uh, and uh, this, this should still be one of the most talked about suspense thrillers of the year. Interesting. And I was way off, by the way, the, the original Invisible Man, 1933, Steve. That's so, right, Claude Rains. That's right. And, and a great, great movie, too. I was just a little off on my timing. Uh, before the break, <laughs> let's, uh, let's uh, take a look, a uh, listen at least, Mike, to movie number six on Steve's list, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. We've dealt with jury tampering, wiretapping, a defendant that was literally gagged. Let's get your hands off me. This is a fascinating story, and it's real life. This is based on a very real event, Steve, the the trial of the group of of, uh, rowdies that disrupted the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968. The trial took place the following year. I was in Mm -hmm. Chicago that summer. I was advised a pretty hairy young guy, and I was advised not to go out on the streets (laughs) in certain districts because there was a lot of anger in Chicago in 1969 Mm -hmm. during this trial. What did you think of the movie? I absolutely loved it. Uh, I mean, it is just uh, hits on all cylinders with a, a great script and direction from Aaron Sorkin, who's known for the newsroom, uh, at the West Wing, mm-hmm. and many, many other things. Uh, and this, the cast is absolutely impeccable. I mean, you got multiple Academy Award winners in there, Mark Rylance, uh, Eddie Redmayne, uh, Frank Langella's in there. Uh, and it's just such a, such a well-put-together film that's uh, like sardonically funny, at the same time, because this trial was absolutely insane. And even if you go back and look at the transcripts, it is just as insane as what you're seeing on screen. Indeed. And Abby Hoffman, one of the lead characters, mm-hmm. and, and not afraid of too many people in those days. Absolutely. And, I mean, played to a T by Sasha Baron Cohen. Like, played so well. He might be the standout of this movie. Now, does that have Oscar potential? I think it really does. I, I think it does for, for scripting, for sure, because it's one of the strongest scripts I've seen this year. Uh, direction? Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of heavyweights this year. Uh, I mean, especially when you move up my list here. But Sorkin does have a chance to get that kind of Dark Horse nomination. Uh, but yeah, I think Sasha Baron Cohen is the standout. Uh, maybe Jeremy Strong as well, who plays his partner, Jerry... I'm spacing on the name right now, but uh, he, he's like kind of his best friend and main confidant. Uh, Jeremy Strong will probably get a nomination as well, uh, both in supporting uh, roles, because a lot of this film, all the actors feel very supporting in it. Like, I can't really say who's the clear lead actor of this film. We went through the first five, and now we're at number six. And is this the, I'm sorry, number five, and is this the new Disney animated film that we're seeing ads for during the hockey games? We're talking Soul here, Steve. Yes, that's the same one. Okay, so tell us about it. Yeah, basically this is about a uh, jazz pianist and uh, who uh, has been always searching for his big, big break. He finally gets it and then promptly found, falls down a manhole and dies. <laughs> and now must uh, partner up with a wayward soul to make his way back to his body. It's voiced by Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey. And Pixar got my heart. And not to be cliched, they got my soul as well in this one because I absolutely adored this one. It resonates. It is such a great message about finding purpose. Uh, And, uh, yeah, it's available on Disney Plus right now for everyone to check out. Interesting. Uh, Mike number four is called Promising Young Woman. Let's hear that clip. Every week I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. 
Wow. Interesting sound <laughs> effects on, on, this, on the soundtrack, too. Tell us about this movie, Steve. Yeah, this is Carrie Mulligan in a performance that you never expected out of her. Uh, she plays a woman that suffered some trauma earlier in her life and now uh, goes to clubs, pretends to be drunk so that the, the males that prey on her will pick her up and she makes them pay for it. This is uh, a straight gut shot to toxic masculinity, crappy dudes that... Uh, prey on weak women and just horrible gaslighting and uh it is so effective you will think about this movie long after the credits hit interesting number three on the list of the top 10 of 2020 is something called mank and that's somebody's nickname isn't it that's that's it that's uh herman mankowitz uh, who is a screenwriter, uh, notably wrote Citizen Kane for Orson Welles. And Citizen Kane is uh, famously based on a real-life person, somebody that he made kind of an enemy of when he was doing this story, and that was Charles Randolph Hearst. Mm-hmm. And what a movie this is. Oh, Gary Oldman just delivers. Okay. And uh, number two on the list, and Mike's got a clip for this, so let's listen to a moment or two of... I'm thinking of ending things. We have a real connection. A rare and intense attachment. I've never experienced anything like it. I'm thinking of ending things. Well, there you go. There's a title right there in that line. Who's saying that and why? Yeah, that's uh, Jessie Buckley. uh, And her her character is on her way to her boyfriend's house, uh, a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, Uh, For kind of that introduction, here's my girlfriend, and hopefully we'll spend the rest of our lives together. But she is kind of in an existential quandary, as is this entire film, which comes from the madman named Charlie Kaufman, a guy responsible for movies like uh, Adaptation, being John Malkovich and Mm. Connected in New York. This movie is weird. It's off the beaten path and, and goes in directions. Uh, that are a little unsettling at times and uh, definitely aiming to twist your brain right out of your skull. And I loved every second of it. Okay. And uh, Steve's number one movie is The Sound of Metal. Mike, let's hear some of that. Your hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play tomorrow. Let's see what it's like, okay? I'm going to be like a click track. You can play to me. What's The Sound of Metal like? Yeah, basically this follows a former a former addict and current uh, drummer in an experimental rock band who is losing his hearing rapidly and has to come to grips with uh, with losing that sense, but has this uh, forlorn need for this experimental surgery that will give him back his hearing. And this movie is it's just incredible. Uh, Darius Marger, who wrote and directed it, and managed to put you inside the head of this of the, the main character as you audibly also lose your hearing without in, within the movie and, and the frustration of that. And I've never experienced anything quite like this film. And Riza met the lead actor in this one. Uh, I mean, shoot him to the top of the list for best actor because what a performance. Wow. Thanks, Steve. You can find more from Steve Stebbings at, on Twitter at the Steevil Dead. Thanks for the top 10 of 2020. Much appreciated. And joined on the line by veteran political consultant and analyst Jerry Nichols joining us from Oakville, Ontario and jerrynichols.com. Good morning, Jerry. 
Good morning, Sterling. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you. I want you to take a look at a couple of things for us, or help us to understand perhaps a couple of things better. One, the uh, the federal on the federal scene, which is your area of specialty. Jerry writes for the Hill Times, among many other publications. And secondly, if we have enough time, we'll take a look at how Doug Ford is doing in the province of Ontario. But let's start at the national level, Jerry. Uh, and I'm looking at a story out of uh, Global News from just a couple of days ago, uh, reporting on that Ipsos poll taken just before Christmas Day. The headline is, support for Trudeau's handling of COVID-19 not enough to win him a majority. And you just know that he's campaigning for that next election, likely next spring, right now. Or at least that's what it appears to be from here. What do you think? Well, I, I don't have any access to the uh, internal liberal polling numbers, of course, so I can only speculate. But my guess would be that Trudeau's pollsters and advisors are telling him right now that it's better if he holds an election sooner rather than later. Because sooner means he can still, you know, he can still bask in some of the uh, adulation he's getting for handling of COVID. Um, he's, people still haven't really turned on him yet. Who knows what the economy will be like in a year from now? Who mm-hmm. knows what COVID will be like from a year from now? So there's a lot of variables in the future that he doesn't know about. Uh, so it's better, I would say, for him to have one sooner rather than later. So, yeah, I think he's going to try to push for an election as soon as he can. But he's already in a position because he's completely bought the NDP. So basically, with their support, uh, he can carry on as if he were running a majority government pretty much until the next official due election date, can't he? Well, it's, yeah, but there's a lot of variables. Like, I always I, I always say that one of the things you cannot predict or, or you cannot sort of plan for or is the hand of God, mm. right? Things which happen which you don't expect to happen. And we can see a lot of things happening in the next few months. Uh, what will happen with a vaccine rollout? Will that be handled well? Will that be inefficient? Will there be any other scandals emerging, like the We Charity scandal, sure. or the SNC scandal? Or most importantly, I think, what will happen to the economy, right? Because a lot of people don't care about scandals. They don't care about all that stuff, but they care about having a good economic future. And if there's a high sense of economic anxiety, people might say, we're done with the fun guy. Let's try, let's try the conservatives. There is- so there's lots of things he doesn't really know that's going to happen right now. So I think he, his best plan is to say, look, I'm basically control of the situation right now. I have the initiative. I can be proactive. Uh, I, I can make this election happen if I want to. And um, I don't want to take the chance of having to depend on the NDP all the time. I want to be even more control of my own destiny. And to do that, he needs a majority government. And I think that'll be his message, too, in an election. That'll be his main campaign theme. With all the struggles we're having, with all the challenges we're facing, with all the dangers which are emerging all over the world, now more than ever, I need a strong majority government. Uh, Jerry, you and I have been doing this on the radio a long time, and I can recall a few federal elections ago when Stephen Harper was prime minister and running for re-election. The liberals at that time accused him and the conservatives of having a hidden agenda, and they really teed off on that to the campaign to the point where, as I recall, it produced a minority government for the conservatives. This time around, the entire nation knows the Liberal Party of Canada has a, well, frankly, not-so-hidden agenda. Given just half a chance and a hundred billion dollar slush fund already set aside, they're going to try and remake Canada. They're going to build back better. They did not get voted in to do this. They do not have a mandate for it, but they are hell bent on pulling it off. 
Which is another reason why Trudeau would want to have that majority government, so that he can. If he, if, you know, he, I think the phrase he uses is a reset. This is what people are talking That's about. Right. This is what people are focusing on. Um, for him to do that, he's going to have to have a strong majority government. And I think that's the message he's going to bring to voters, which is why the conservatives, they got to get their act together. And if they want to beat Trudeau, they got to you know, go after his weaknesses. And they, gotta, they can't be afraid to brawl with this guy, right? They got to take the fight to him uh, because they sort of sit back and get complacent and say, oh, you know, Canadians are going to vote against him because they're worried about this. They're worried about this reset, or they're worried about the deficit. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. They're going to. They can't wait for this to, to win. They have to fight for it to win. Well, Jerry, and that brings us to the official opposition, otherwise known as Aaron. Who? Uh, <laughs> because uh, you know, Mr. Trudeau has had the advantage since the, since the uh, beginning of the pandemic to govern from the uh, steps of his uh, residence uh, with uh, with basically no parliamentary interference, uh, unfettered access to the national media whenever he feels like it, and has really established, used that to establish a credible persona that clearly is benefiting him in the polls. The other side of that coin is, uh, as you just said, somebody should be taking the fight to him. Where the heck is O'Toole? I have yet to see Aaron O'Toole even slightly miffed about anything. You know, one of, uh, whenever I think, well, just to give you my own, my own background, I'm a bit of a brawler in terms of, of, of what I do in politics. Um, I tell you a story. Uh, I used to, when I was working in the States, I was working with a guy who was known for some really savage attack ads. Mm-hmm. His nickname was the Merchant of Venom. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the Merchant of Venom and I were meeting with this guy who wanted to run for the U.S. Senate. And he told us, you know what? I have a real problem. The guy I'm running against is just so darn nice, so likable. To which the merchant of Venom said, he won't be so likable after I get through with him. Mm. Right? So that's what they got to do. They got, the conservatives have to make Trudeau less likable. Right? And the only way to do that is you got to get a message out there. You got to hammer him every day. You got to find something new every day to hammer him on. You can't let him off the hook. You always have to be on the attack. And the problem with the conservatives, as far as I can see it, is they don't really seem to have a stomach for that kind of fight. Mm-hmm. All too often, they get on the defensive. And if you're the opposition leader, you can't be defending, right? You have to be always on the attack. They have to be aggressive. They have to go on the offense. They have to put Trudeau on the defense, because that's the only chance they'll have of winning. Uh, and Mr. O'Toole has uh, uh, one of his competitors from the leadership race, Leslin Lewis, who is a Toronto lawyer who has yet to uh, get a seat in the House, I think uh, would be a force to be reckoned with. Uh, and and uh, I suppose there are a couple of people. Michelle Rumpel Gardner has been on our program a couple of times. There are a couple of spokespeople. Pierre Poilievre, of course, is out there being, I suppose, his own venomous self on the public airwaves frequently. But they're just doesn't seem to be a consistent profile and it's not about being angry at everything and oh, i oppose that's because you're the opposition you're supposed to oppose we need a little more we need alternatives and we're not hearing any of that well i, th- I think it's a, it's a two-pronged approach that conservatives have to take on the one hand they have to be aggressive they have to go after trudeau on the other hand i think o'toole has to sort of channel ronald reagan ronald reagan was known for his optimism mm-hmm. right and I think that's what, why people liked him. People who thought he was, opt- he was optimistic and he was promising a better future, people who liked, for, liked him voted for him. 
And I think O'Toole has to do that. He has to put forward an optimistic vision for the future, especially with everything that's happening with the economy and COVID and all that other kind of stuff. I think people are looking for an optimistic, optimistic vision from, from O'Toole. Now, that's kind of a hard thing for conservatives to do because conservatives tend to be pessimistic, right? Right. That was, everything's horrible. Yeah. Let's go back to the good old days. That's mm-hmm. usually the kind of like the conservative message. So I think O'Toole has to break that mold a little bit, and he has to be, look, here's where I want to take the country. Uh, I, I have a plan. It's ambitious, and it's going to work. It's, he's got to have some kind of economic optimism. I think that basically is a message he's got to bring home to Canadians um, and that, combined with you know, sort of bashing Trudeau wherever he can, that I think could be a, uh, that could be the path to victory for O'Toole. In conversation with political analyst and commentator Jerry Nichols in Ontario, and talking about uh, the role of the opposition in a time of a crisis, and of course, it is a pretty delicate balance. Uh, the opposition, of course, has to be supportive of public health initiatives and protocols and all of those sorts of things, but it doesn't mean they have to be uh, completely uh, complacent about things either. So uh, it, while struggling with the balance, uh, clearly as they are, uh, there there seems to be, to many Canadian voters, Jerry, a lack of vigor in, in the opposition ranks. Yeah, I think that's true for both the NDP and the Conservatives. The NDP seems to become, I think one journalist called them the Junior Liberal Party, mm-hmm. which seems to be a good description. Uh, I don't think, I, I think the NDP is actually in worse shape than the Conservatives. I think they have a leader who doesn't seem to be able to gain any traction with Canadian voters. They don't seem to have a vision. They don't seem to know who they are. I think they're having a real hard time fundraising as a result. Conservatives are in better shape. Um, I think I think O'Toole is probably an upgrade over Andrew Scheer. Yes. Um, uh, Andrew Scheer was, was just sort of a politician. He didn't really have much of a brand. O'Toole, at least with his military background, that kind of gives him automatic branding, right? It makes him a patriot. It makes him brave. It makes him all these wonderful things that we associate with military officers. So he has that advantage right out of the gate. But I think he's got to build on that, and he's got to let Canadians know who he is. Yes. Uh, He's got to define himself, because typically what happens to conservative leaders, if they're not careful, is they let the liberals define them, right? There's an old maxim in politics, define or be defined. Mm -hmm. And if the conservatives allow the liberals to define O'Toole, He'll come across as an extreme, you know, right-wing, Bible-thumping, you know, populist or whatever, whatever the liberals want to throw at them. And then the, cons- then the conservatives will be playing defense. Yeah. They'll be saying, that's not me. That's not who I am. And when you're denying, you're, you're dying, as they say in politics. So I think it's up to a tool, and he's got to get on this quickly, because as we mentioned, there might be an election this spring. He's got to say who he is what he stands for, and what he's going to do. Now, it doesn't have to be complicated. He doesn't have to have a 100-point plan. Yeah. He just needs to have a few emotional issues that will resonate with people and get across to them and say, yeah, that's the kind of guy I can support. That's the kind of guy I can vote for. Let's take a look at the guy in your neck of the woods, Premier Doug Ford, Conservative leader of Ontario, who's gone through quite a metamorphosis since he was elected. He got a majority government, took out the the Kathleen Wynne government. Uh, the media was not on his side. Uh, he was seen as a bit of a bull in a china shop, a bit of sort of a bit of an awkward guy. And then all of a sudden, the pandemic comes along, and he's seen now, by, I think, by more Ontarians than ever before, as an actual leader. What happened there? Ford, as you said, he's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. 
uh, you know, he, 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 he dispatched with win and he was a hero and he was like top of the line. The media never liked him. Media was always attacking him. He, he had trouble communicating early on. He was falling in the polls. And yeah, the pandemic came and suddenly he, he's a hero. Yeah. Uh, and the media loved him. And I think that's because he took quick, decisive action and he did it quickly. And in times of crisis, people like strong leaders. And, and Ford came across as a strong leader. And the media, even the media, which up to this time never really liked him, they were, they were sort of singing their praises of him. And Ford kind of started praising Trudeau, of all things. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, Trudeau is a great leader, and he said some great things with this pandemic. Right now, it seems, I would say, that the, 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 the roller coaster might be going down again. Because now he's sort of implemented the second lockdown That's in Ontario. Right. Yep. And he's getting blasted from both sides. Right. Some people say he should have done it quicker. He should have done more. Um, other people are saying he's doing too much. He's hurting the economy. So he's kind of get blasted from both sides. The media is starting to turn on him right now. So I think he his I haven't I don't know what his polling numbers are, but I, I suspect he's getting a little bit worried about that. And the evidence I have is that his recent news conference, he started bashing Justin Trudeau. Interesting. You know, the one thing that has surprised a lot of Canadians, especially in other provinces, about Doug Ford, because we just don't know as much about him as you do, uh, you who voted for him, uh, is especially in this era of Trump and especially at the beginning of the pandemic, he took the time to look directly into the camera and go, this is rough. This is going to be really horrible, and I can't make it any better. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and sweeten anything or sugarcoat anything. Here's the real deal. Here's the raw stuff, and people really appreciated that, Jerry. Yeah, well, as I said, you know, when people are worried, when they're anxious, they seek out strong leadership, and when a strong leader arrives in the scene, they will rally around them, and not just conservatives, but everybody, because people they have kind of a psychological need to think, hey. Someone's looking out after us. Someone's take care of us. Someone's going someone's to keep us safe. And I think Ford sort of capitalized on that, and he kind of rode that wave. But that emotion's hard to keep, right? It's hard to keep people happy. It's hard to keep people motivated. And this, you know, this, this virus has just been dragging on month after month after month. Right. And it's, it's, it's wearing on people. And so suddenly the lines that Ford was using back in March aren't working so much now. Because the, the virus seems to still be getting out of control, even though, even though we had all these lockdowns, you know, the economy's hurting. And it seems so to be... He's, you know, he's going to face some rough times because of this, and he's going to need every ounce of his leadership again to pull himself out of it. It's interesting that he seems to be facing more blowback uh, from, from the public than Trudeau these days. Well, I, I think that's true for all the premiers, because they're doing all the heavy lifting, Right. They're the ones who are. They're the ones who are the bad guys, like Pallister. That's or, right. I'm the, I'm the Grinch the who stole Christmas. They're That's shutting right. down businesses. Yeah. They're, they're shutting down the economy. Trudeau, on the other hand, he's just he's just shoveling out the money, right? Uh, uh, with, with the checks to help people through this, mm-hmm. and so I think he's sort of benefited from that. Now I think there are some there are some possible you know hands of gods, as I mentioned earlier, for Trudeau in the future too, with his vaccine rollout. If that isn't handled efficiently, if that isn't handled out fairly, if there's a perception that he's screwing this up, that could be a real problem for Trudeau down the road. Interesting stuff. So, final question to you. You've got 15 seconds. Will there be an election sometime between now and Canada Day 2021? I, I, I would say yes. Hmm. Okay. Well, Don't hold well, me to that. Oh, I, oh, it will, because that means <laughs> we're going to get together and do this again uh, once, uh, once circumstances change a little bit. Thanks very much for this today. Compliments of the season to you, Jerry Nichols. All the best, and we'll talk again soon.
Thanks, Joeling. Happy New Year. You can find Jerry online at jerrynichols.com. Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, recently bought the Balmoral and Regent Hotels on the downtown east side to convert into affordable housing, which Vancouver desperately needs right now. So let's take a look at the project as it stands and as it is intended to become. To join us, uh, joining us rather, to take a look at it is Shane Ramsey, the CEO of BC Housing. Shane, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Uh, Good morning, Sterling. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell us, first of all, what role BC Housing has in this scenario. Well, uh, BC Housing wasn't a party um, to the purchase and sale agreement uh, with the owners in the city or or the expropriation uh, procedure. But we did provide the city with assurance when they launched the expropriation that the province would support um, the remaking of the Balmoral and the region hotels. And so that assurance gave them the, 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 uh, the confidence uh, uh, or assurance to proceed with the, um, with the expropriation. So now it's a done deal. Uh, is, have all the T's been crossed and the I's dotted? Is it official? The, the property transfer is complete? Yes. Uh, yes, it is, Sterling. Okay, so now what's the timeline here, Shane? Uh, you, under, you backstopped this purchase, understanding what the mission is intended to be. Give us some sense of what the timeline looks like. Well, that will really depend on what the ultimate um, remaking, redevelopment of the two properties um, look like. Now that the ownership has been secured and now the uncertainty of um, a court proceedings is um, set aside, we can now begin um, the technical work, the community consultation work, um, uh, discussions with the city around what the remaking of those properties is going to look like. And, and, and they're quite different um, properties. If you look at the Regent on the, on the south side, it's bordered by um, significant um, buildings, including a, a relatively new um, market condo building. So the Regent may lend itself more to um, a, a regeneration or a rehab of the existing structure. And so that will be one of the things that um, uh, we look at. And then when you're looking at um, that type of kind of technical work that goes into it, the technical work permitting uh, could take um, up to a year. Uh, and then the, and then the redoing of the building, the renovation of the building, probably um, 18 to 24 months, because one of the things we would do is to convert the almost 160 rooms. You know, these are, you know, small rooms with washrooms down the hall, not many cooking facilities, right. we would convert them to um, self-contained suites. And so obviously within that footprint of the building, uh, there would be a smaller number of self-contained suites as opposed to the 158 rooms that are there now. So the idea would be, though, however, to extend privacy privileges to those who end up living there so that there aren't common uh, areas like bathrooms and so on. If, you, if you're lucky enough to get a room in one of these newly revamped premises, you're likely to have a bathroom and perhaps even a small cooking area as part of the deal. Oh, yeah, no, these would be self-contained suites with... Um, with um, uh, bathrooms, private bathrooms, and um, uh, cooking in small kitchen facilities. And so that's why you'd end up maybe, you know, two for one in the, in the number of spaces. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, just, uh, I mean, obviously there's math involved here because that's going to require more space per individual footprint. So what will that take the numbers down from? What is the capacity of these properties today versus what you anticipate them to be after the do-over? Well, the, the, the region is about 158 rooms, um, and, and until we do the detailed technical work, which we haven't been able to get in to do yet, we won't know what the final unit count 
is going to look like if I was if I was you know hazarding uh, um, a, a guess probably in the neighborhood of you know between sixty five and eighty um, sixty five and eighty um, self contained suites. Now the Balmoral across the across the street on the north side of Hastings it could be a different kettle of fish because there are. Uh, there are um, uh, lots on both sides, some um, uh, fairly, um, um, y- you know, fairly substandard buildings. So there may be an opportunity there for a lot consolidation in the city and BC Housing will look at those opportunities. And then in that case, the Balmoral could actually come down and you'd expand the footprint uh-huh. in order to do in order to do a complete um, a, a complete new uh, build there. So you could end up, um, in fact, um, uh, maintaining or converting what are now. Um, small rooms into um, in, into you, you know um, the same number of self-contained suites, but of course until we do the technical work with the city, um, look, look at the lot consolidation opportunities, we won't know what the final um, what the final redevelopment of, of that site is going to look like. So there is potential though for for even more accommodation were the city to acquire the land on either side or perhaps both sides of the building, it could dramatically increase the uh, housing uh, capability. Yeah, it, it could depending on on the result of discussions with the city, the land use approvals, uh, consultation with the community around what the final form of development could look like if you're able to acquire and consolidate those properties. And that's only, that's only um, if um, th- that happens. And so I know that the city and the BC Housing are interested in looking at all of the options, including, um, you, you know, it could be um, a redo of the Balmoral uh, as well if the lot consolidation and expanding the footprint um, is not uh, practical or doable. Yeah, and land is just so darn expensive anywhere in this city. That uh, that slows the process down a little. So quite a reality check when you look at the price tags on, on an empty lot uh, on Main Street in downtown Vancouver, isn't it? No. Yes. Uh, no, for sure. So for sure. what, What again, timeline, and, and we do uh, appreciate your joining us this morning, Shane. So realistically, to have either one of those properties just acquired, occupied by people who don't have a place to live right now, realistically, we're looking at somewhere around 18 months? Um, it, it, probably longer than that. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, Sterling, so you're looking at the region. It's a year of... Um, a technical work consolidation, not, not consolidation, um, a year of technical work consultation, um, and then probably an up to a two-year uh, reconstruction period because you are looking at, um, uh, you know, heritage, seismic, um, hazardous material uh, complications for those buildings. They are, you know, 100 years old, more than 100 years old, so we're going to have to um, come to terms with those. And then on the, on the north side with lot consolidation, land use approvals, consultation, uh, demolition, construction, that, that's probably in their neighborhood of three to four years. Interesting stuff. Well, uh, you got to start somewhere, and we, we appreciate your joining us this morning, Shane, to give us at least an, an idea of what the master plan looks like. We appreciate your time. We thank you for it, and we wish a happy new year on top of all that. Great. Uh, happy New Year to uh, you and your listeners as well, Sterling. We Thanks appreciate for that. Me. Wow, it's okay. great. Thanks for joining us, Shane.